0: Hello, and welcome back to the Building HVAC Science Podcast. What's our goal? To help create better, more knowledgeable HVAC and building performance technicians by helping the two professions better understand each other with the ultimate goal of making customers happy in the homes they live in and the buildings they work in. Now, I'm taking a wild guess here, but I think a lot of the listeners work in businesses. And sometimes... What goes on in businesses is not clearly understood, sometimes even by the owners of the businesses, the supervisors, the managers, and sometimes the workers. So I'm going to take a little sidestep here in the normal flow of information I provide and talk about something of interest to business owners. However, this topic is likely of interest to people working in a business too. So while this episode might be helpful to business owners, anyone working in a business should find it interesting to know more about one of the topics on the mind of many business owners, business succession planning. Now, my guests on today's podcast, after walking the walk of leading a $100 million family-owned business through their transition, Lori Barkman is now a guide to business owners, providing a structured process to plan successful transitions of their companies. Lori hosts a podcast. Hey, fellow podcaster. It's called Succession Stories. There's a link in the show notes. She's also written a book. Yay. That is quite an achievement, a life achievement. Her book is called The Business Transition Handbook. There's also a link in the show notes for that. She's also an adjunct professor, professor that's hard to say, an adjunct professor of entrepreneurship at the Tepper School of Business at Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I'm been both a guest on her podcast and I've read her book. Lori has a tremendous depth of knowledge and experience in an easily understood way of speaking and teaching on a topic so near and dear to her heart. I'd like you to listen closely to this episode and see what you can pick up and learn. And this is a very intriguing topic for many now, especially because of the baby boom generation retiring. One's a good time to think about succession. Today, we're taking a scientific view on one of the business processes all business owners and even non owners should be paying attention to. And that's the topic of succession. And I want to introduce to you my new friend, Lori Barkman. Good morning, Lori.
1: Good morning, Bill
0: thanks for coming on. I was recently on Lori's podcast, which is to be released yet, but we had a nice conversation. And I thought, well, I'm going to return the favor. I feel it's an important topic for business owners. And like I said, even non-business owners, and we can dig into that a little bit, but it's knowing about this process of transition. I asked all my guests to give me a topic sentence and I really like yours and you really hit on it repeatedly in all your communication. So it's like your heart and soul. So what is that topic today?
1: Consider this 100% of business owners are going to leave their company one day, but few are prepared. Are you? It just hits you.
0: Yeah, it does.
1: We will leave our business vertically or horizontally. Which one will you be?
0: (laughs) We do outtakes. I mean, not outtakes, but we do clips. That's a great one. I think we should. (laughs) Vertical or horizontal? Okay. To give my listeners a chance to appreciate and my guests, I always ask them to share their background so they know how we got to this convergence of talking on the podcast. So please
1: share yours. Absolutely. And Bill, thank you so much for having me on your show. It was a pleasure to have you on Succession Stories, and I'm so glad you invited me here today, so thank you. My background before I became the Business Transition Sherpa was a career in growth roles, What's a growth role? I'm really focused on growing the top line, marketing, strategy, business development, in companies small to big, from startups to corporates, the largest corporates in the world, and everything in between. I was hired from the outside as part of a long-term succession plan in a third-generation transportation logistics company. They really liked my e-commerce background. They liked that I had digital transformation experience. And they liked that I was gonna be joining a division of this billion dollar company that was a little more maverick. And it was well known that it was part of a succession. And I thought that I would be working at this 125-year-old company for years, 20 years in my interview. They said that I'm not we're not interviewing for you for the next two, we're interviewing you for the next 20, which I was so excited about. Well, what happens? This little bluebird offer from multinational corporation everyday name, FedEx, came a calling and they wanted to acquire the company. They wanted to acquire Jenko, And that happened in 2015. I had been there for about a year and a half. And at the time, it was not expected. No one expected it. We didn't know that they were watching the company from afar. And that's a really key lesson. You and I can talk more about it as we talk about my book is that you never know when your natural acquirer is watching you. You don't know that. So how can you really be ready? And Jenko was ready and Jenko was interested and it did result in a transaction. And as part of the team, as part of the executive team and being part of that M&A transaction, I learned a lot. Another big lesson I learned was the integration side. And what was that like? And what did that feel like? And that's what really got me started in recognizing my interest and in working with business owners that are in the lower middle market to help them not only on succession and thinking through their management succession, but really about ownership succession. And the book that I've written, which is called The Business Transition Handbook, has a whole chapter dedicated to that topic, which is who should own your business after you. And it's so complex and complicated and it's not easy to think about and there's so many issues and related questions. And that's part of my superpower. I have found over the years is bringing clarity to people, entrepreneurs, I don't just say people, and of course, friends and family find that one of my superpowers too. But in in terms of the clients that I work with, it's the clarity around these difficult topics and helping people just take a weight off their shoulders to have someone to talk about these complicated things and put a plan together for how can they can address them. Define succession. Yeah, succession is one of those words that you really have it in the eye of the beholder. Succession of what? I think succession should be talked about in succession of ownership and succession of management or leadership. And they could intertwine, but they don't have to. You can succeed at your ownership and sell your business to a third party, and your management team will stay intact. You don't have to change that out, right? And vice versa. And you can think of all the combinations. So it's good when you think about succession to think of what and to whom and why and when and what and what are all these things. So when you and I talk today, we should probably preface it mostly around succession of ownership. But we can definitely talk about succession of leadership.
0: And I'd like to... Be inclusive of the whole audience because they may not all be business owners and listening and they're wondering, what is he talking about? But I think the thoughtful management of the integration side that you talked about. So, if something like this is happening in the company you're working at, you can be aware of what the bigger picture, maybe not intimately your details, but a lot of effort goes into making sure things are handed over well. It's not a take the money and run situation. That's one of the topics I'd like to have you talk about a little bit?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think it recognizes that there's an emotional side as well as a practical side to all of these decisions. And business owners who I have met, and that's now the hundreds and hundreds of them, whether they're on my show or in workshops that I've done around the country, people are genuinely concerned about their stakeholders, whether those stakeholders are shareholders, equity holders, their family members, their members of their larger community Or they are employees, and of course, customers and vendors. They do care. They don't want to just take the money and run. And it's not about what you do that causes regret. A lot of times, it's what you don't do that causes regret. So, in the context of your question, if you're in the management team or you're part of an organization that is thinking about succession and possibly a sale to a third party, The sensitivity is that people tend to think, well, what's in it for me? What does this mean for me? If you're encouraging our listeners, and I hope so with your question, to think about what does it mean in the context and the big picture, what it means is that the owners are caring about the continuity of the business. They could just close the doors. They could just liquidate it, but they don't want to do that. They care about their legacy. They care about their employees. They want to see this continue forward, and they're trying to find the right solution. Very good. Yeah.
0: I think it's important for people to hear that in the HVAC industry, we've seen a lot of equity entering into buying just because of the nature of the population, (laughs) the demographic. Can you get into that? Maybe the number of small businesses, the age group, and what's happening with that? The boomer generation owns a lot of businesses. Talk about that. You probably have statistics at your fingertips.
1: There is something called the age wave, which is the millions and millions of boomers that are positioned for retirement. And I don't have the number off the top of my head, but it's in the tens of millions of potential business owners that are in the age for retirement. So that would put folks in their 60s and 70s. There's many people I've spoken with in their 70s that are just not yet ready. Too busy or they're clearly probably going to leave the business horizontally. And that's their choice. That's just how they're living their life. They just cannot separate for whatever reason. So this age wave of potential baby boomers who are either going to retire and sell their business or close their doors is something that we have been watching for a while. And it is starting to really be interesting. I'm a Gen Xer and the Gen Xers are in a really interesting position to either inherit that business from their parents or to acquire those businesses because Gen Xers have enough work experience under our belt, potentially in that industry or other things that makes them a good acquirer to run the business. And there's also this phenomenon of the millennials who are interested in business ownership. So what are we seeing here? We're seeing that there's momentum at the top of the age range, but there's also some static where the Owners just don't want to leave. The message that I would have for the audience is that the earlier you can plan for your business transition, the better off you will be. Don't be that guy or don't be that woman that is age 72 and doesn't have a plan. And again, I have met these people and it's so uncomfortable because they've told me they have health issues. They've told me their daughter or son doesn't want the business. And yet they still have no plan. And that's the uncomfortable part of all of this, is that we inherently know where this is going. What does that mean for our economy if many of these businesses close down? Here's a statistic that is relating to this question. In the lower middle market, which we'll just define it as $50 million in revenue and under. Now, this is a big, big number of companies, millions and millions of companies in the U.S. fall in this category. They employ a lot of people. They generate a lot of tax revenue for the government. of these owners do not have a written succession plan, ownership plan, might be in their heads, but it's just not figured out. And likewise, there's another number out there, which is what percent of these companies that put themselves on the market to sell, actually sell. And it's only about 75%. So there's the 20% of them out there that are desirable, that are attractive, that are transferable, and that are ready to sell. You might think you're sell ready, but you're not. And what happens? Then that's friction. So when the owner who's 72 is thinking, oh, I'm not ready yet. I'm not ready yet. Guess what? The business isn't ready either. My story with Jenko was a great story. The business was absolutely ready. So when that bluebird came a calling, we knew what to do. We were ready. Now it took time. That's not an instant thing. And we had to do go through all the diligence process, but it worked out very well. Now, again, that was a larger company. So it is a little bit of an apples and oranges. But my point hopefully is well taken that... The more time you have to prepare, whether it's preparing the business for a transition, preparing for yourself and for yourself to be ready, you can't do that overnight. Because let's face it, in the private markets, the buyers are the ones who perceive the value. They are the ones who are setting the price. You can't go to Yahoo Finance and look up a price per share. So there's an infinite, the science of this and the math, there's an infinite number of permutations of what that number could be. And it becomes a negotiation and perception of value. And I'm guessing you're going to ask me this too about, and we could talk about it, which, well, what creates that value?
0: Exactly. I was going to say the preparation for the business, that's where the value is landed. So yeah, if you could talk about that. and This is where I at the introduction, I said, for non-business owners too, because the things you're talking about build great businesses, even if they're not going to be sold in the near future or not going to be transitioned at all. So could you please continue with that?
1: Absolutely. And I love how you phrase that. That is the benefit of going through this thought process is what would it take if someone knocked on my door today to make this business transferable, attractive, and ready for a sale? And if you think about that every day, have your business being ready to be acquired any time, that means you've got a lot of things really working well in your company. So yeah, let's talk about what a few of those might be. First and foremost is our people. Can you as the owner step away and have a vacation and really unplug and you can say yes for three hours? Okay, great. (laughs) Three hours, but that's not a a very long time. (laughs) It's a start, it's not zero. Can you do five days? Can you do a week? Could you do a month? This counterintuitive idea that our businesses are worth more if they can thrive without the owner really catches some people off guard. They're like, what? Wait a minute. I thought I was the secret sauce. Yes, you are. You're wonderful. And you know your customers by name and you know their dog's names and the birthdays of their kids and where they went on vacation. And that feels great. But if your business cannot thrive without you, It's going to make the transferability of the business a question mark. And then what will happen to the price that you're offered? It'll be discounted. So one of the main things is, can your business thrive without you?
0: And on the reflection in the mirror is that's opportunity for the employees to learn and to grow. Absolutely you should encourage your owners to look at this because they're going to loosen up the reins. They're going to let go of the rope. They're going to give you more opportunity in your job. may become more challenging, but more fun in
1: the process. Yeah. Two great places to look from a functional standpoint are sales and product or service development. Let me give you an example. On the sales side, I've had some clients where the owners are the ones who are leading the sales process. And by the way, there really isn't a sales process, but whatever it is they're doing. So they are the face of the company. They're the ones who are landing big contracts. The account teams are getting recurring revenue and existing clients to retain. That's up to the good work of the teams. But on new deals, new business, it's the owner. That's an example of a problem. If the rainmaker is you, if you're the owner, no one else is involved, well, what happens if you're not in the business? That's why the buyers are going to say, well, okay. Now, maybe for some buyers, they'd say, oh, that's okay. We have a sales team and we'll just integrate your wonderful team in. That's not a problem. All right, that's fine. Again, to the eye of the buyer, what's important to them. I'm just calling it out that oftentimes the rainmaker dilemma is a challenge. The other side of the coin is the service and product development. Is your business teachable. The services of what you deliver is teachable. Can you teach it to other people or are you yourself the only one who can deliver that service? They won't scale because they need you, right? And then you can't take the vacation. I have a friend who's an attorney and and this is a joke, not a joke, where he has a client where the guy has to walk into the manufacturing floor and kick the machine because he knows exactly where to kick it. And he's the guy. This is another example. I did a workshop where one of the owners was, was talking about, he's an engineering firm, And he had just gotten back from some obtuse Hawaiian island that we've never heard of. And that's where the rockets are sent off into space from Elon Musk's company. And he was talking about that experience and how cool it was. And my only takeaway, I just remember, was thinking, oh my gosh, he is the only person in his company that could go fix one of Elon Musk's rockets. That is just not a repeatable, scalable service. So that's an extreme example. And... Those are oftentimes where I look first for owners, where if there are owner dependencies, where are they? And those are the two most common areas.
0: You said, and then the teachable aspect also involves with really thoughtful examining the process, recording the process, but also putting the process up for review with staff, with the team as you do that transition. So do you have any examples of that?
1: I have a client that's working on this right now. He's in his 40s and he's the founder of the business, but he's working really hard to make sure that his team can deliver on project work. He knows he can do it and he does it in sort of a once a year thing. But I've been coaching him on is that really valuable revenue? And is that the best return on your time? Yes, you get a high margin on that work if you're doing it. A, should your business be doing it at all? And B, Could you offload that to junior engineers or to other people in your business? And I think he's finally agreeing that they are going to probably phase it out. And in the meantime, he'll try to train some other people because he's trying to grow the business. He's trying to double the business in two years. Why is he working on these projects that are going to earn him $25,000? He should be working on other things.
0: Yeah. The bigger ones. And Something else, you mentioned a couple of times you wrote a book, and I want to make sure that comes out and the listeners get to hear about that if they're interested. Do you want to talk about that a little bit?
1: I wrote a book called The Business Transition Handbook that puts together a number of different themes that we've been talking about here. And The basis of the book is how to avoid succession pitfalls and create valuable exit options. And Each chapter is a pitfall to avoid. I was trying to write the book with the audience in mind. There's so much to talk about. The beginning is the best part, I think, which is the goal setting. And having a transition mindset, it starts out with some chapters around, well, what are your goals? And how do you think about transition? What does that mean to you? And as we said earlier, this emotional side of transition, acknowledging that we have some things that aren't just the practical side and the number side. Now, of course, we do get into the number side. But the way I structured the chapters, to me, is a logical flow. I love for people to read the book in order of these chapters because they build on each other. And of course, you can jump around. But for example, the owner dependency discussion is literally chapter three. And chapters one and two are very, very short. I put that in the front of the book because it's so important for owners to look in the mirror and see if they themselves are standing in the way of running either a more enjoyable business today or a more valuable business over time. And then in the book, not only is it words of wisdom from Lori Barkman, from my experiences, but a lot of it comes from my clients and from people who have been on my show. At the time I wrote the book, I probably had 110, 120 interviews done and so many common themes from all walks of life the entrepreneur who's the founder the acquisition entrepreneur the financial planner the account tax advisor accounting and tax advisor CPAs the mergers and acquisitions professionals like myself the M&A attorneys all of us are what i call the boat business owner advisory team there's some level of advisory what i often find myself saying is it's not easy to build your business you haven't done it on your own why would you look now to the transition of your business by yourself? One of my clients said it best. He said, "Laurie, he goes, "Exit planning, transition planning is so much harder than building my business." And he's got about a 9-10 million dollar revenue business that he's owned for about 15 years. And what the book ultimately leads the readers toward with these stories and case studies and actionable work that I want you to do. I give you assignments in the book. And each chapter ends with, well, what are you going to do, right? I give you literal space to write it in. And the later chapters in the book put it all together for what I call strategic business transition planning. Just like a company may have a business plan over three to five years, that's a strategy for the business and how we're going to grow it and our operations. Why wouldn't we do that on the transition side? Now they're going to dovetail on the business and they should, but for personal and financial, where the owner has private goals around that private, meaning they're not ready to share it with their management team until they're ready to share it. The three-legged stool is personal business financial. And it's the business piece that we've made to really make sure we align. And my clients love that process because intuitively it makes sense. We've been planning for our business. We were putting pen and paper on that why are we not putting pen to paper on our transition strategy? And it's an investment that I think will pay off in dividends.
0: One of the elements you talked about was people would float into process and process capture, really understand how your business works and reflect on those processes and enable employees or staff to upgrade themselves to work in a different role, perhaps something more interesting. One of the other concepts we talked about was recurring monthly revenue. And a lot of the listeners are HVAC companies who do have things called service contracts, maintenance contracts. What's your take on RMR?
1: The value drivers of a business, there's eight of them in general. And I talked about one of them, which is having a business that's not owner dependent. There are other aspects that would make your business attractive and transferable and ready. One of the things that buyers, often value highly, is a recurring revenue model in the business because it's more predictable. Private equity money flowing into the HVAC industry because of the high percentage of recurring revenue makes sense to me, knowing about the different types of buyers. Financial buyers and private equity groups, are type of financial buyer, are looking for predictable streams of future cash flow. And a business that has a higher percent of total revenue that is from the service contracts or that can demonstrate, and this is a heuristic, it's not a hard and fast number, but let's say 30%, north of 30% of total, can a business have 40% of total? The higher that is, like think Netflix, think about these businesses that have a really, really high percent of total that are committed dollars contracted via credit card or via written contract for multi-year. Think uh, Iron Mountain, if you know Iron Mountain's business model, where you're storing your paper in their caves for years and years, right? Seven years. That's a beautiful business model. You don't need to chase that dollar every month. It's more predictable. And HVAC companies that have cracked the code on recurring revenue will see a premium on their price in the market. And so that's I think one of the main reasons why private equity has invested in those types of businesses over the last few years.
0: If you could you come from a tremendous background that I don't have <laughs> and our listeners don't have and you're also your faculty at Carnegie Mellon School of Business, Tepper School.
1: Yes, I'm an adjunct professor of entrepreneurship at Carnegie Mellon Tepper School of Business.
0: Okay. So can you describe the different types of Business acquirers, and your take—just brief take on their structure and their motivations.
1: Sure, there are three core types. The first is strategic buyers. The second is financial buyers, and the third are related buyers. We talked a little bit about financial buyers, so let me just close out on that one. Financial buyers are motivated; their ROI of how they get an ROI on their acquisition is buy low, sell high it could be a turnaround, it could be a larger, what's called a platform deal. So they want to run that business as a standalone within their portfolio, or they might acquire smaller ones to tuck in to the larger one that they've already bought. So the parent-child.
0: Building blocks.
1: Building blocks. Yeah. And the economics of what they're willing to pay for those businesses will sometimes vary. They may pay higher multiples for what's called the tuck-ins, because they're very strategic in nature. And the competitiveness of the offers, typically, this is not in all cases, but strategics tend to pay more than financial buyers do. Not in all cases. As I said, there's always these other areas, but a strategic buyer is a company. It's a company that's a competitor or it's a company, that entity that's in your ecosystem, in your space and in your industry, could be a supplier, could be a vendor. Many times it's this larger company that has an eye for what your specialty is as an entity and they want to integrate it in to their larger entity. So their ROI generally is because they're going to take pieces and parts of it, okay? And so that's called leverage. Now the third group, Is the related buyers who could literally be related. They could be family. They could be partners of the business. They could be management. And related buyers, the way to think about them is that they'll probably pay the lowest of the three categories. And they know the most about the business. They're more of the insiders. So strategics tend to pay the most. Financials are in the middle. And then there's related. Now, could I be wrong on that? Of course, there's always going to be exceptions, but that's the general an ESOP, you'd say, what's an ESOP and where does that fall? Okay, good question. <laughs> he, I wrote that down. I know what you're because you read the book. I know you did. Yeah, I did. I did. Yeah, an ESOP is a employee stock ownership plan, which is governed by United States law for just like ERISA. It's a benefits plan. And there's taxation benefits to a company because they become a tax-free entity. What? Let me pause on that. Yes, it's true. So the company no longer pays taxes and It's basically the ability for employees to one day get this financial benefit. It's defined in the future. It's complicated. You definitely need attorneys. You definitely need the right tax advisors. You can't just pick it up and do it. And the companies have to fit the description of who would be a good ESOP company because of this payback liability when essentially you're selling your company to an ESOP. So there's usually bank lending involved. So banks could finance the deal. The owners might do a seller note, and I know I'm getting complex on this, I'm sorry, but just to give the sense that, oh, if someone says, I want to be an ESOP, I don't want to give that impression. It's typically companies that are mm, benchmark, I'd say at least 2 million in EBITDA annual and maybe 70 employees, 50 to 70 employees, because you have to have enough of a demographics diversity where not everybody's going to call upon the ESOP to pay out to them at the same time because that just wouldn't work. So if everybody is age 50 and they all come and they say, I'm ready to retire now that ESOP's going to cash me out, it just doesn't work in the program.
0: And I'm always careful for my guests to make sure they're my listeners. I call them guests. (laughs) They're guests in our virtual room here that's asynchronous with the world. But EBITDA, please define that.
1: EBITDA is Earnings Before Interest, Taxes, Depreciation, and Amortization. So on your financial statements every month, if you're taking a peek, you've got your top line, which is your revenue, you've got your cost of goods sold, and that's your operating profit. And then there's all this other stuff to minus out. So that's more like your general expenses and office expenses and salaries and payroll. Yes, you've got your kind of your gross profit up above, and then you've got your net operating income for the business. In Modeling a business valuation, one of the things that we do with business owners, especially if we're talking about founder led business, is doing an exercise where we want to learn about expenses that are either one time revenue or one time expenses or discretionary expenses that an owner might have where we could do an add back. And so, on that calculation of what is EBITDA, a proxy is seller discretionary earnings. And EBITDA is when, in this exercise, we are estimating replacing the owner and we have to add back their salary. And it basically is profitability of your business. And I'm giving you just a little bit extra education on if we were going to model out a valuation of the business of your EBITDA. If the owner is staying in the business, then it's just as is. But if they're leaving and we're going to add in another person to run it, then we need to accommodate that. So in the general financial statements. It's going to be the lowest number on the page (laughs) for your profitability before interest and taxes and all that stuff. And if we're going to do an adjustment evaluation, an evaluation exercise to get a market estimate, we want to be understanding what expenses are flowing through your business that a different owner might make different choices. And that's why interest, depreciation, amortization, they're non-cash. That's why they don't matter. But also on the interest side, a different owner might make different decisions about debt.
0: Sort of like the engine of the business is the EBITDA and you can put different gas in it. That would be the interest taxes, depreciation, amortization. You could put different fuel in that engine to run it differently if you were a different owner than is currently being done.
1: That's interesting. I think Warren Buffett's a big believer in taking a really hard look on a depreciation, especially for capital intensive companies, that they may have equipment that needs to be replaced. So in a service business, you don't own the assets. But I think the understanding for your customer, which would be the building owners, that they have to be looking at the depreciation of those systems and then what's the capital investment they need to make to update.
0: So I'm going to ask you one more educational question, if you don't mind. We're in closely with a lot of influencers, social media. So I'm reading a lot of posts all the time. I think you could help add clarity to defining what is private equity? Like, how are they set up? what are the size ranges, and how do they approach running businesses? And they are one of those financial. And again, if you really want to dig into this, tune into Lori's podcast or buy her book or your website. What's your website?
1: My website is thebusinesstransitionsherpa.com. And the book is The Business Transition Handbook, which is on Amazon. And the podcast, which is available wherever you listen, is called Succession Stories.
0: Okay. But back to my question, I'll stop peppering you with questions, but if you could define the structure, what are general partners, what are limited partners, how do they go about financing things for businesses? Because that's going to be, I just read an article last week in our industry newspaper about the number of private equity getting into HVAC. So.
1: Yeah, private equity groups are in the category of financial buyers because they are institutional, as we say. And institutional means that there are governing agreements, a managing partner, And I was part of a private equity group in my career, so I have a bit of experience here too. A private equity group has limited partners where there are high net worth people who are qualified investors. They have to sign off on certain paperwork and they contribute X amount of dollars towards the fund. A private equity group tends to have different funds where they raise a certain amount of money And then they'll close the fund when they've raised all that money that they want to. And then the managing partners make the investment decisions. Largely, the financial investors here are silent partners. Most typically, they don't have a say in the portfolio decisions that are being made. And I think that's one distinction. So if you're investing in a private equity group, chances are you're going to reap the benefits from other people's work, but you yourself are not directly involved. You might get reports quarterly or monthly on how these investments are doing, but again, you're not getting a board seat. You have no role in the governance of the business. It's really arm's length.
0: It's like investing in a stock or something like that. That's right. Like a private stock. yeah.
1: It's private. It's illiquid. It's private market. There's risk involved, just like any investment. But what's the payoff? The payoff is in the portfolio, if the portfolio itself has investments that are generating a lot of good cash flow. They're investing in turnarounds. Again, buy low, sell high mentality. They have a five to seven year time horizon in general on these investments. So they're looking to sell it again. They're looking to get a second bite at the apple. So sometimes private equity groups, and this could be a nice benefit to owners who HVAC owners who are looking to sell. Sometimes these funds offer the owner a opportunity. So they'll just give you a simple example. Let's just say that the company is going to sell for a million dollars and they could say, okay, we'll give you 600,000 cash at close and you could roll the other 400,000 into our fund. So they get an equity stake in the larger portfolio. Some owners might choose to do that. They might like that. Some owners might not like that. So I'm not saying what they should or shouldn't do. I'm just saying that in general, if you hear the phrase second bite of the apple, that's what that's referring to. Because if the portfolio has successful exits, they would participate in that opportunity. I'll give you an example. There's a private equity group in New England that I've been working with on the mergers and acquisitions side. I was doing research to call upon businesses that were in their target segment. And this absolutely is part of their strategy in this service market And it wasn't HVAC, it was a different segment, but the service businesses, recurring revenue. They wanted people who want to stay on in the business. They want to run the businesses. So they were running them like portfolio, like larger platform deals. They may eventually do tuck-ins, but that we were starting with these larger ones. And they're offering them the second bite of the Apple model. Now, for the right fit, it was a great opportunity. The first company that I secured for them, they had two guys. Owners, I think 50-50 ownership in their late 30s absolutely fit their mentality. Work hard, play hard. Let's stay on. Let's do this. Can we get 100x over our our initial exit? That's the opportunity. It's not always going to be 100x, but that's the opportunity. And private equity, yeah, is essentially trying to, in industries like HVAC, where can they get economies of scale? So a private equity group that's been investing in the HVAC industry with platform deals and is now doing tuck-ins, that's pretty strategic because the larger entity, as they add them together, they add up math-wise. And so it's called accretive. You're increasing the value of your original investment with each additional investment you do. And now if you have this bundle of companies that you've stitched together and you've taken cost out, it's going to be a more valuable entity. And then if they sell that valuable entity five to seven years later, then everyone wins.
0: Very interesting. I think we've filled our listeners' heads up enough (laughs) (laughs) with a very different topic. Oh, I did want to throw in one analogy here because I know you're a Pittsburgh Steelers fan and so am I. You live in the Pittsburgh area and so do I. You don't want to fumble when you make that exit. You don't want to fumble when you make that transition. So that was the one little tie-in I wanted to do.
1: I love the tie-in. Thank you. (laughs) That's fantastic.
0: Because it's so much, there is a lot of information out there. There's a lot of trusted sources like you, and there's no need to make a mistake. And when's the best time to start thinking about this? Yesterday. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. And if not that, today. Today.
1: Today. That's right.
0: Very good. Well, Lori, thank you so much for coming on this different business-oriented type of podcast. I really appreciate your insights, and I hope our listeners do tune in some of the free assets that you offer there on your website and podcast or take a look at your book.
1: Absolutely. A great place to start if people are interested is an assessment, and I offer two of them on my website. One is a personal assessment, personal readiness, and one is a business readiness, and they're both available and complimentary. To each other and complimentary free too. <laughs> free of charge, yeah. Excellent. Thanks again, Lori. Thank you, Bill.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Building HVAC Science Podcast. If you'd like to get in touch with us, drop an email to marketing at TrueTechTools.com. I also host the Res Talk Podcast where you can learn more about the rapidly expanding world of home energy ratings and peripheral topics. There's a lot of great trade-related resources and influences out there, including the HVACR School, HVAC Shop Talk, Stephen Reardon, HVAC Reefer Guy, Tool Pros, Service Business Mastery, Quality HVAC, HVAC Overtime, HVACR Videos, HomeDiagnosis.tv, AC Service Tech, and of course, Measure Quick. Hopefully you found this little different episode interesting for you and giving you an insight into the world. Of some of the topics on the mind of some business owners. Thanks again for listening to the Building HVAC Science Podcast. Until next time, take care.